Hi there, you're listening to a new episode of Open Season and today we're discussing captaincy in cricket. It's an art to some, it's a science to others. All in all, it's a subject of great debate across the cricket world. What defines a great captain? Is it someone who takes a bunch of proven performers and makes them an all-conquering unit? Or is it a leader who inspires a group to punch above their weight? Why is it that the best players don't often make for the best captains? You're about to find out. And that's not all. We're also examining the week's most intriguing stories in a new segment called Hot Off the Press. And today it features big developments around tennis's US Open, a not very satisfactory return of Spain's La Liga, an official announcement finally around the IPL, and something called the Impossible Games. So let's jump right in. From newsrooms and studios, to couches and armchairs, two ardent enthusiasts, one common language, sport. This is Open Season, your all-sport podcast with Rahul Dalal and Yash Chah. The reason why we started thinking about captains yesterday is because of an innocuous little news story from the last week, isn't it? We know that England are trying very hard and preparing towards hosting the first international series of the COVID era. West Indies have landed in the UK as well for three tests. But as we now know, Joe Root might have to miss some or all of those tests because he's awaiting the birth of his second child. And because that's going to happen, Ben Stokes, who over the last year has won them a World Cup, has won them a miraculous test match at Headingley with one of the greatest test knocks of all time, is the reigning ICC cricketer of the year and is now expected to be captain as well. Basically, England's go-to man for every problem. But I'm just thinking, Rahul, this is one problem too many. You know, if you look at the history of cricket, all-rounders haven't usually made for great captains. There are only two who literally stand out. Kapil Dev, Imran Khan, we unfortunately didn't get to see them in the thick of action. But you look at an entire generation and a half that's come after that, you've literally never had all-rounders being captains. Present-day cricket, perhaps there's Jason Holder for West Indies yeah. and Shakib Al Hassan, although he's banned now. Yeah. But all-rounders don't get appointed captains and there's a reason for that. You are already relying on them a lot. In the case of Ben Stokes, it's not just batting and bowling. He's also one of the best fielders in world cricket. So there's a lot he's already doing. You can't burden players anymore. Yeah, when you think of the best all-rounders of our era and you think of South Africa's Jacques Callis and there's a reason why Jacques Callis has never been permanent captain of South Africa. He was offered the role several times over the course of his career. But he was adamant and he said exactly what you're saying. I'm already doing enough. I can't see myself also taking on the extra roles and responsibilities of being the captain of a side. And that's why you had a 22-year-old Graham Smith who was appointed South Africa captain because Jacques Callis had refused the role. Yeah, and I'd really expect England to take lessons from South Africa given that they anyway take players from South Africa. But even if they weren't doing that, they could at least take lessons from themselves. Because what is bizarre to me, if they're considering Ben Stokes as a permanent captain anytime in the future, is that this is England's third consecutive generation with an all-timer all-rounder. You had Ian Botham in the 1980s, then Andrew Flintoff in the 2000s. And there's one more common thread to the two of them. 
they absolutely tanked as captains. Botham Rahul was captain only for 12 tests, in which he won a grand total of zero games. <laughs> wow, it can't get any worse than that. It can, because in those 12 tests, Botham's personal numbers were quite god-awful too. He averaged less than 15 with the bat. Even bagged a pair in what turned out to be his last test as captain at Lords against Australia during an Ashes at that. But then what happens immediately afterwards is mind-blowing. Because in the next test at Headingley, Ian Botham takes a 6-4, hits a 50, then hits 149 not out, as England, who were following on, managed to turn a game around and beat Australia. It was only the second time it happened in test history. It's only happened once more ever since. A test we know, of course, Kolkata 2001. And, and he wasn't done there. He went on to be the man of the series as England, who were 1-0 down when Botham was captain, eventually won the series 3-1 on the back of one Ian Botham. That is insane. On the other hand, I remember Flintoff's captaincy career had started quite well. England had come to India for a test series. Yeah, this is 2006. Alistair Cook was debuting. It was a very young, very unheralded sort of team. And it finished in a creditable 1-1 draw. And Andrew Correct. Flintoff, I think, hit a couple of half centuries and took a few wickets uh, in the deciding third test that England won by over 200 runs to avoid a series defeat. Yeah. But, <laughs> as we know... In 12 months, it was all over. In 12 months' time, England had been mauled 5-0 in the ashes and Andrew Flintoff was gone. And it was disastrous enough for them to change the captain while literally boarding the plane to the World Cup because by the time they landed in West Indies, Michael Vaughan was back as captain. That's why you have so many of their former captains. You know, we've heard from David Gower, we've heard from Kevin Peterson. The alarm bells are ringing. They're like, no, we cannot have Ben Stokes go down the same route. So please stop thinking of him as a captaincy option. He's already doing enough for you. Yeah, and for Kevin Peterson in particular, this is a very close to home matter. Because we mentioned a short-lived Flintoff stint. Well, Peterson was even shorter. I think 12 ODIs, 3 tests, and it didn't end well at all. Yeah, I remember Peterson being a disastrous captain in the IPL as well. Yeah, basically KP and captaincy just just never sat together, you know. And just imagine, this is the guy who was among the best cricketers of that generation worldwide. Certainly ranks among one of England's finest ever batsmen. Yeah. It perhaps goes to tell you that your best players, your star cricketers, don't necessarily make the best fit as captains. Indian fans here have known this for over 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Our god of cricket, probably the greatest to have ever played the game, Sachin Tendulkar, failed as a captain. There's no other way to put it. He did. Four wins out of 25 tests, 23 wins out of 70 plus ODIs. I mean, yes, you could say that it wasn't the greatest Indian team at that time. Nowhere close to what we've seen. But to me, the greater concern was that not only was India not winning, but India, the one-man India, were also seeing Sachin Tendulkar, the batsman, suffer by his standards. And we know, having grown up watching it, that if Sachin Tendulkar, the batsman, wasn't clicking, India might as well not play, right? Yeah, it is game over before it began. Another name that flows almost naturally from Sachin Tendulkar is Brian Lara. All-time great of the game, probably the most stylish left-handed batsman. He had two different captaincy stints with West Indies, but both of them were disastrous. Yeah, his first stint was 99, couple of years as captain before Carl Hooper was appointed. Then Hooper retired and Lara became captain again. But all told, over 47 tests, just 10 wins, Rahul. That was the worst for any West Indies captain at that point for over six decades. 
But unlike Sachin, Lara the batsman enjoyed being captain clearly because through this span, he averaged 57.8. Wow. I have a third example. South Africa's A.B. de Villiers, who definitely had the quality to be mentioned in the same breath as Sachin Tendulkar and Brian Lara. His numbers are actually remarkable. You know, while he was captain, he had a 60% win rate. He scored 5,000 runs at 63.94. 13 of his 25 career ODI centuries. But what it actually did was, it burnt him out so much that he eventually not only had to give up captaincy, but had to retire from international cricket because he just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, and that too so abruptly. Because he'd only been captain in one format actually. While he was leading the 100-odd ODIs, Hashim Amla was test captain. Mm. Then Hashim Amla decided I need to move away from captaincy and they gave AB de Villiers the captaincy. And within three tests, AB says, you know what, this is getting too much for me. There's too much pressure on me. I want Faf to take some of it. And he moved away. And you see that that burnout led to the whole confusion we've seen over the last couple of years where the man who we knew as Mr. 360 on the field basically made his career a bit for 360. I'm retiring, I'm not retiring, I want to come back, I don't want to come back. Maybe I'll play the World Cup, maybe I won't. You know, it's just been sad. And you just come out of it with the sense that it robbed us of maybe another 2-3 years of watching a true Superman. But you know, Yash, while we've given these three big examples of it not being the best choice to pick your best player as captain, we must not forget that one team, the most successful team of the 2000s, Australia, they negate this point, don't they? Because they have consistently appointed their best player as captain, generation after generation. And it seems to be a perfectly winning strategy. Look at how much they've won in the 2000s. They had those record streaks under Ponting and War. They've won every World Cup in this century barring 2011. And now 2019, of course. But two factors to me, Rahul. A. Luxury. You know, I mean, if you look at the teams, in particular the teams that existed under War and Ponting till the end of the 2000s decade, that team just needed to turn up on the field to win 95% of games. Mm. I mean, I remember Shane Warne once said about coaches that when you have a team like this, the only coach you need is the one that takes you to the field. (laughs) You could hold that true for a captain as well in that generation. But where I credit them, succession planning and the benefits of it. Mm. Because, you know, I think back to the time when we were quite young, Steve Waugh was coming in as captain. You'd known while Mark Taylor was leaving in the late 90s that Steve Waugh will be taking charge. And you almost knew right when Steve Waugh began that three, four, five years on, whenever he decides to call time, Ricky Ponting will take charge from there. Mm. And that flew further to Michael Clark and then Stephen Smith. And you see that when you plan that well, when you get your leadership transition phases, mm. it clearly did wonders on the park as well. We're seeing it for India as well for the first time, isn't it? There was planning between that change of captaincy from Dhoni to Virat Kohli. Correct. And we can see the benefits of it now. This is a winning machine, the kind of Indian team that we haven't been used to seeing ever. Yeah, I mean, just ignore a few knockout games. We are the king of the league stage. That is true. We have developed a choking habit in the knockouts. (laughs) But our consistency is better than it ever was. That is true. And that makes it a common factor. And if you thought from the late 90s to to almost 2010, Australia were the dominant force in world cricket. There was succession planning. And in the last five years, all formats together, India are probably the most consistent force. And again, there has been succession planning. 
The opposite side of the spectrum comes from India's neighbors though, doesn't it, Yash? <laughs> because I'm thinking just in my head, succession, planning, Pakistan and I'm thinking these two things don't go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah, these words are abstract concepts. <laughs> and I had this noted down, Rahul, because I was going through some numbers, as you know, I love doing. Imran Khan went out on a high with the 1992 World Cup for Pakistan as captain. Since then, 27-28 years... Pakistan have had 19 different test captains and 20 different ODI captains. Wow! That means they're changing their captain in a little over a year, on average. Pretty much so. And the funny part is, Sri Lanka appear to have picked up a bad habit. Because Sri Lanka, who were consistent, mm. with, you know, obviously Ranatunga transforming their fortunes, then Jaisuri Atapattu in the middle, Jaivardhane Sangakara in the middle. But what's happened after that, I'll be honest, Raul, I didn't even attempt getting their names down on a sheet. Because post-2014 is just one big mess. In fact, they made such a habit out of it that they've even managed to win a World Cup while changing captains, you know. Because 2014, when they finally won that World T20 against India, Angelo Matthews had started the tournament as captain. Then he missed a game. Then he got back in the team, but Lasit Malinga had been leading them. So Matthews played the final, but Malinga was captain. Mm. And they won a World Cup. Clearly, that's an anomaly, Ash, isn't it? Because as we know, Sri Lanka's present-day fortunes not looking very good. Absolutely. Leave alone winning World Cups, they're barely qualifying for them. Clearly, succession planning is a good thing. But as fans of Indian cricket, Yash, we also know that sometimes you take a punt and it works out. The greatest captain of the last decade and a half, MS Dhoni, he didn't have the benefit of succession planning, did he? In 2007, he did not know that he was going to suddenly be thrust into the India captaincy, that he would have to go and lead a side of nobody's, uh, you know, at a T20 World Cup. Yeah, it almost felt like the selectors at that point were like, you know what, we don't care about this new format. Random assortment of players, go do your thing. And then they did their thing. And Dhoni sort of goes against all the parameters we've considered, right, Rahul? No succession planning. Wasn't at all the biggest star of the team. Had no captaincy credentials from the past. But as we know, what he had was an instinctiveness for the game, right? And this is where his predecessor, somebody like a Saurav Ganguly, the BCCI, deserve credit. They spotted this leadership potential in a player who had not shown it before he became part of the Indian camp. Yeah, I think no question, Rahul. Instinctiveness bringing a new philosophy. Maybe not having all the other parameters, but... Having an idea, having a vision and staying true to it. Even if it involved, you know, taking harsh calls as we saw. Not afraid of telling the senior players, you know what? I need 11 good fielders on the park. Mm. So hands down, MS Dhoni, the best captain of this last generation. Definitely for us, probably for most of the world too. To me, if I look outside India, one captain I've admired in our times is Brendan McCullum. Mm. Because you had New Zealand cricket. Always, you know, around but never, never a team that, you know, you sat up and took serious notice of. And then Brendan McCullum, the Baz brand of cricket as it was labelled and it reaps such rewards. The interesting thing about Brendan McCullum is that New Zealand only arrived at him as their captaincy choice after a failed experiment with Ross Taylor. They used the same logic that many teams have used in that they appointed their best player at the time after Daniel Vettori's retirement post the 2011 World Cup. And Ross Taylor was in fact captain at the 2012 World T20 as well. But Mike Hessen, who was appointed coach shortly after the end of the 2011 World Cup, soon realized that Ross Taylor actually wasn't the best choice for captaincy at all. 
there was also a power struggle in fact that's how bad it came we think of the new zealand team as such good boys now but the dressing room was torn ross taylor felt you know a little affronted that after a year he was asked to step down and brendan mccullum asked to become captain in all three formats so another example of the best player in the team not being the best captain option and only adds another layer to mccullum's eventual success mm. like you know to come out of a crisis have a team transformation an ethos transformation and reap its rewards and in fact to me the beauty with mccullum is that it's an ethos that hasn't only stamped itself on new zealand in that you see kane williamson probably our favorite captain among the present captains mm. and new zealand have made two successive world cup finals but actually rahul both the world cup finalists were built in a way on the mccullum ethos because what many might not know is that owen morgan and brendan mccullum have been best friends mccullum in fact was best man at morgan's wedding and you see a common theme here yeah that fearless brand of cricket morgan absolutely exemplifies the captain who has a philosophy who has a vision and who has the resolve to stick with it no i remember actually the 2015 world cup you and i were working together and england were an absolute disaster that tournament won they morgan i think had been appointed captain only a year before yeah. in place of alistair cook because you knew that alistair cook just wasn't making your odi team anymore they had an absolutely woeful world cup they didn't obviously make it out of the league stage but then they decided you know they they kind of looked at themselves in the mirror morgan saw the failings of his team and he along with andrew strauss who had become director of cricket they had the awareness and the vision to have a long term solution and they realized that their brand of cricket was wrong for odis so they reinvented themselves played this absolutely fearless cricket you know where every batsman in your 11 has been given the license to just go out there and tonk it yeah totally decided to redefine the boundaries of odi cricket and while yes we will never agree with the outcome of the final There was from an English perspective a bit of poetry involved there to me because they decided we need to attack 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 we want boundaries left right and center and in that way a little fitting that they did win a world cup on a boundary count how true we mentioned all these names rahul dhoni mccullum morgan stand out revolutionary captains of the last decade or so i'll add one more name here he's an outlier in a way complete enigma though the only man to have lifted the t20 world cup twice darren sunny i'm assuming you said he's an enigma because he didn't do anything of note with the bat or with the ball in any of those two t20 world cup winning campaigns did he nothing at all yeah he was an unspectacular batsman definitely not a bowler who was expected to bowl all four overs the epitome of the bits and pieces cricketer very little bits you know like a poor man's ravindra jadeja but clearly an absolute maverick leader because while he was at the helm west indies despite the chaos of their cricket organization you know their gun players playing in t20 leagues abroad not wanting to play for west indies having perpetual contractual problems with their cricket board payment issues through that turmoil he still managed to get a bunch of players motivated enough to go all the way in two big global tournaments Exactly and I love that you said maverick leader he was also the leader of the maverick men because 
this is an assortment of the finest t20 cricketers on the planet no doubt but they hardly ever play together like you mentioned mm. they come together once in two or four years for this world cup and all the egos all the eccentricities in the same dressing room and he ties them together and manages to do something that no other captain has done so that's why just on the back of those two tournaments alone darren sammy to me ranks somewhere around our pool of you know the dhoni the mccallum the morgan It's now time for hot off the press and yes this is a segment in which we take a look at the news stories that have got a fancy over the last week or so and this one has been particularly newsy i want to start with tennis because we've seen a whole bunch of developments around the us open this week it's very very clear that the us tennis association is desperate to host the tournament because they have come up with this elaborate plan and protocols in order to host the tournament in new york which as we know has been ravaged by the coronavirus pandemic we're talking like charter flights to get players from across the world mandatory quarantine requirements having to stay just around the venue complete cut off access from the outside world no entry into manhattan and the stickiest point of them all which is that in order to reduce the number of people inside a stadium they can only be accompanied by one other member which for elite players is a big big problem because they are used to traveling with massive entourages four or five just support personnel and then some family members yeah and that's why on quite expected lines you've got this elite crop of tennis players quite clearly saying you know we're not up for this it's led of course by world number 1 novak djokovic who has reservations against pretty much all that's been laid out by the USTA so far rafael nadal too has mentioned that he's not too sure of traveling to the US the same goes for the following rung in your dominic thiem and alex zverev and even on the women's draw you've got the top two ashley barty and simona halep who've made their choices quite clear that we don't feel safe enough and all of this of course is compounded by the fact that you're already going to have one roger federer who is out for the rest of this year having undergone another knee surgery so the absolute cream of the sport is against it but they're almost in a battle now with the next rung of players on the tour because those guys who feel like they have been much harder hit than the elite by the coronavirus shutdowns no tournaments means no income for these guys so yeah. they are really desperate for this grand slam to go ahead if possible because it would be the first paycheck that they've managed to get from the sport in a long long time and even a whole bunch of former american players led by lindsay davenport are saying that you know if you are the organizer of a grand slam you can't look at the guest list and decide whether to host the tournament or not it is a tournament that should be held regardless of who might or might not travel because it is a tournament that is held each year at that time i don't really buy into that logic rahul just think about it right a grand slam where you don't have federer nadal djokovic halep barty that's not a grand slam i mean if they want to organize a tournament and you know get some revenue flowing get some viewers that's understood hold a tournament any tournament but you can't call it a grand slam without the greatest people in the draw i agree ashan i think it's extremely unlikely under these circumstances that the us open can go ahead i believe we are going to get a definitive decision this week that is as we speak we're recording this on saturday the 13th of june 
Three of the guys you mentioned, Yash, Djokovic, Thiem and Zverev, as you know, have been in action this week in an exhibition event being called the Adria Tour. It's a charity event that plans to go around some Balkan nations, three or four stops in order to raise money for the coronavirus. The first leg happened in Belgrade. And I'm sure you've had a chance to see the photographs and the clips that are doing the rounds on social media. It was an absolutely surreal feeling. You know, as if the pandemic had never happened. 20,000 people packed in the stands. All these players, you know, hugging each other, posing for photographs with each other, handshakes, fist bumps. No distancing whatsoever. Absolutely no distancing, not a mask in sight. Kids in attendance as well. It's bizarre. It is bizarre, but apparently the Serbian government has lifted lockdown restrictions and so all gatherings and outdoor events are allowed. In fact, there was a football match as well between uh, Partizan Belgrade and Red Star Belgrade that had about 25,000 people in attendance. And I find that quite baffling really because it's not like Serbia is a country which has wiped out the coronavirus. In fact, since the lockdown was lifted, which was just this past week, cases have been on the rise again and then you've got this event where 20,000 fans are packed right next to each other no distancing and I can see where the part of the tennis world that wants the US Open to go on might have problems and questions to ask of these players we mentioned Djokovic, Thiem, Zerep these are the guys who are saying they don't feel convinced about the safety measures and all that's being done to have a US Open which is a grand slam a major competition the same guys are ready to risk safety at an exhibition event. So something doesn't add up there. Something definitely doesn't add up. Football, of course, is back. We'd set up to it in our last episode and all the big ticket action resuming. La Liga is already underway. Sevilla Betis was the first game and uh, I think you, you got a glimpse of that, didn't you? Yeah, I was interested to see what the viewing experience would be like. We spoke about it in the last episode. La Liga was implementing you know, a few novel things in order to enhance the experience. Fake sound that they use from FIFA 20. Some virtual crowds in the stands. Let me tell you, it was one big sham. This fake sound, <laughs> mostly through the match, you couldn't even hear it. The mix was so dialed down. And they had said that they would be syncing the sound in order to suit match events. So when there's a tackle, the sound should change. But that clearly wasn't working at all because... Uh, I remember there was a penalty that led to the first goal for Sevilla and when that foul took place, the crowd was still cheering in the background. <laughs> so, complete disconnect. Also, this fake crowd, it's like the worst 2D graphics that you've ever seen, Yash. And you could only see them in the long shot. So, when you actually show a close-up, the seats are empty. In fact, in Spain, it is drawn comparisons with the crowd in the FIFA 20 video game, which <laughs> looks so much more realistic. So, some great ideas for sure, but loose ends clearly to tie up on the execution front. Hopefully, they do that in the weeks ahead. Uh, Italy, of course, saw football return with a big game. Juventus versus Milan in the Coppa Italia semi-final, the first leg of which had been played ages ago. They towed the Bundesliga line where there were no optics, no antics in the crowd. Clearly, that did not help Cristiano Ronaldo because he missed a penalty. But fortunately for him and Juve, they are still through to the final. 
Yeah, just the second time that Ronaldo has missed a penalty since he joined Juventus. But we are more excited about the Premier League, Yash. That is the league that's coming back this week uh, with uh, Manchester City versus Arsenal. So, a pretty big game to kick that one off as well. Couple of developments which we've heard of in the Premier League. We were speculating about neutral venues, home venues, yeah. where Liverpool could win their title. Good news for them is that all of their home games have now been cleared to be held at Anfield, regardless of whether they can clinch the title or not. Also, their first game back, the Merseyside derby, which is to take place in the same city but at Goodison Park, has also been cleared and that will not be at a neutral venue. So, very realistically now, first night back for Liverpool celebrations could be on. That is, of course, assuming that Arsenal beat Man City first. Yeah. Cricket, though, continues to be in limbo, at least as far as the World Cup is concerned, Rahul. ICC... Continues to dilly-dally, still no announcement, they're waiting for some sort of... I, I don't know what they're waiting for. Yeah. Although the BCCI is increasingly almost making it clearer what the World Cup stance is. Because now we have BCCI officially going on record and saying that they are looking at September and October to make that IPL happen. Uh, on the international cricket front though, we are right at the cusp of first action. Because West Indies have arrived in England, they are already in their bubble in Manchester. And the tour that will follow that, which is Pakistan, that's also taken strides as Pakistan have named 29 players who will travel to England for some tests and some limited overs action. Possibly the most interesting thing that I saw this week, Yash, was actually athletics. And I managed to catch the appropriately named Impossible Games, <laughs> which took place in Norway. And I think the organizers deserve like a real pat on the back for the innovations that they displayed, you know, just to have the competition go ahead. Like for instance, there was this 2000 meter race that featured the Ingebrigtsen brothers, three Norwegian brothers racing in the stadium and taking on a Kenyan trio that were running in Nairobi in a closed stadium where it was raining and it was extremely windy. So, the conditions were definitely not the same and unsurprisingly, the guys in Norway won it quite easily. But it was still exciting nonetheless. There was a pole vault event which featured the current world record holder, Mondo Duplantis, take on the man whose record he broke this year, Renaud Lavillenie of France. But Lavillenie was competing from France in his own backyard and he'd already finished all of his jumps earlier in the day and recorded them. And then Duplantis performed live in the stadium and they played each of Lavillini's jumps in sync to make it look like it was happening in progression. Wow, just such a transformed environment. Is, is this what we could probably come to expect? In the short term, it certainly looks like it. There is another event that's planned in Zurich next month. Those are called the Inspiration Games that are going to see much of the same Probably even more ambitious in the sense that they are trying to have events which might take place simultaneously in four or five stadiums around the world. But I have to say that if this is the future of athletics, there is a very, very big problem here. Because as far as entertainment is concerned, I'm all for it. And I thought it was great to watch. But it means that we are losing out on any meaningful competition, you know. So we're never going to actually be... You know, looking at legitimate world records or have any legitimate parameters for comparing two sets of athletes if they don't compete in the same stadium anymore. Very true. But as things stand, we'll give them two thumbs up for the innovation, like you said. And I personally will applaud them also for the brilliant naming here. Impossible games, inspiration games. Wow. <laughs> 
So that's all we've crammed in for you on this episode, episode three of Open Season. Quite enjoyed that discussion we had on Captain Z Rahul. Yeah, it was fun, wasn't it? And quite engaging too. And we'd love it for you to share your thoughts on it as well. Uh, write to us with your favorite captains from the modern generation. You can reach out to us on our social media platforms. Yeah, that's at Open Season Sport on Twitter and Facebook. Do also check out our previous episodes in case you haven't. And if you like what we do, do pass this along to a friend as well. See you next time.